0: When we think of Germany's place in the modern world, it's as one of the most powerful nations on earth, a political, economic, and industrial leader at the heart of the European Union and one of the stronger cultural identities within Europe. In the face of all this strength, it's easy to overlook the fact that Germany has only been a United state for a total of 71 years if you leave out the Cold War division. For most of its history, what we know as Germany was actually hundreds of tiny states that weren't really drawn together until 1871, making Germany a younger country than two-thirds of the countries in the Americas. And the 13 newer ones were all old colonies that didn't manage independence until European powers cut them loose in the mid-20th century, to give you a little bit of perspective. So how could there have been no such thing as Germany until after there was a Canada? And if it took so long, what finally pulled them together? My guest Dan McGinnis and I are going to tackle that story today. Let's begin. Welcome to HI101. I'm here with my good friend Dan McGinnis. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about the unification of Germany. This idea was actually uh, Dan's, so thanks for the idea, Dan. No problem. I'm really looking forward to this topic. Um, Me too. I'd forgotten just how interesting German stateshood really was until I started going back and looking into it a little bit more for this podcast. We're in for a treat. i oh good. Yes. Now, before we get to the nitty gritty, though, there's a couple of things I just kind of want to talk about. Normally, with key concepts, I like to sort of work them in as we go. But some of the things that we're talking about tonight are so kind of nuanced but also very important that i just sort of want to run over it really quickly beforehand and central to the idea of germany becoming a country in 1871 is this idea of what is a country uh yeah you know that's a fair question and it's actually a really difficult question because it's one of those things that we don't really bother to uh, like define in, yeah. our, in our in our lives at all.
1: It's the closer just... you look, the harder, the more slippery the word
0: becomes. Right. And specifically, the thing that we're looking at is a concept called nation-state. And you hear that sort of used often interchangeably with country these days. Not always, but many times it's it's interchangeable. So I want to talk a little bit about both of those things and sort of what they mean, especially in the context of the story of Germany becoming... A nation state in 1871 the first thing i want to talk about is something called westphalian statehood
1: okay
0: this is uh it's a big giant name it comes from the treaty of westphalia in 1648 that's the end of the 30 years war and westphalian statehood was this idea that was laid out in the treaty of westphalia of what a state is and basically what they say is that the state is a supreme power in a region, and that no state has the right to infringe on the sovereignty of any other state. The reason it was outlined this way is because the Thirty Year War was all about trying to make all the other countries into your religion. It was just a giant thirty-year party, it's just sure a huge Europe-wide party. Yep, and basically that's what it was about. It was it was looking in on your neighbors and going, listen. We have no economic problems. We have no political problems. In fact, we're incredibly similar. Often, you know, miles apart, um, a, sorry, a small number of miles apart could be cousins. No problem, but they're the wrong religion. And so that's enough to going. And... Yeah. Got to die. Yes, yeah. it's time. Yeah. And after the 30 years war settled, they'd been fighting for 30 years and they kind of decided that's enough. We need to we need to find a way to not do this that's a big theme at the end of wars. you'll find that off often after war there's just a big conference to find out how to not have war again basically uh they reach the hangover point
1: yeah. and say we i'm never doing that again there's
0: the morning after there's oh so much regret yeah yeah and they make themselves this promise so part of this westphalian treaty was this promise of listen we can't just decide that we don't like what's going on inside someone else's borders and make that a reason for war. That's insane. So we have to learn not to infringe on the sovereignty of each other. What sovereignty is is just the utmost utmost authority in a region. Okay. Uh, this idea of a legitimate power. Now we can keep going down this rabbit mm-hmm, hole, mm-hmm. but let's let's kind of leave it there for now. Okay. The other idea that we kind of have to approach is what a nationality is. And that's an even trickier part than what, a, than what a state is, than what a sovereign state is, because nationality is this sort of ideal that no one really quite makes. They never quite get there. But sort of nationality, there's, there's matters of ethnicity tied up in it, there's matters of culture tied up, often matters of religion, things like that, and this idea of, of being one people. A homogeneous group. Yes, homogeneous group. Exactly, and sometimes you get kind of good examples if you look from really, really far back. Like you look at France, and France is the country of France, and everyone in France speaks French, and they're all French people, and they have similar. Except you look closer, and it turns out that France in the seventeen hundreds, maybe forty percent of people spoke something other than French as their main language, and. There are religious differences throughout the state. There are groups that would rather not be part of France. Like That's, that's really common when you look a little bit closer. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Canada today. It's with, easy with to understand. Yeah, Quebec yeah, within it. it um, Spain with the, the Basque region. There's separatists within Belgium. Like it, it happens everywhere. This idea of nationality is really fragile and very hard to define. That being said... There's this idea in the 19th century of the nation-state being this ideal political system because their thinking on it is what a government is there to do is to represent the people or to act in the people's best interests, right? In a state, ideally. And we're talking in very... Is
1: that what they were thinking at this point?
0: We are talking about a a a um, post-Enlightenment Europe. So there are at least aspirations of a state representing the people okay and it's supposed to be a give and take relationship you give the state taxes they give you protection it's much more complicated than that obviously and in practice it's usually much more corrupt than that and i think we all know that
1: and is at this point is the the state essentially still synonymous with a person a person a state sovereign in the person of a queen or king in most cases yes and Is it the queen or king defining these things rather advantageously for themselves? Oh, of course. Hmm.
0: Always. Okay, But if we look at it sort of on a conceptual level, which is sort of what we're talking about when you're making a country, because when you're talking about making a country, you're very idealistic anyways. It's not until you kind of get into the thick of things that the ugly practicalities kind of come to the surface. Now, this idea of a nation state is basically okay, if the, if the government is there to act in the best interest of the people, the best way for it to do so is if all the people are the same and they all want the same thing. And the best way to make that happen is <laughs> so, if each state is representative of one nation. It sounds like an engineer's solution to the problem. In that it completely disregards the, the human equation.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: it, it is. It, it absolutely is. It's a very functional uh, way of looking at statehood. But it was also seen as the best solution at the time. Keep in mind that we're talking less than a century after the French Revolution. We weren't very good at figuring out how international politics worked at that point in time. We weren't great at it.
1: They, they still can, could sometimes boil down
0: to family arguments. Absolutely. What you get is this sort of shift in the 19th century towards nation states and a balance of power. And this idea is let's make a bunch of nation states that are approximately the same size or at least as close to the same size that if one of them gets uppity the other ones can kind of do something about it and kind of nip any problems in the butt let's not let anyone be so powerful that they can simply dominate all of europe and we're talking about a very eurocentric view here of course before this you're looking at all sorts of different systems you're looking at empires you're looking at city-states You're looking at uh, multinational states, so states that have fairly sizable minorities within them, by which I mean the ruling class may come from maybe 30% of an ethnic population, but they've got four other sizable uh, minorities within the country that they're ostensibly supposed to be ruling over. It doesn't always work so well that way. Shocking. (laughs) And under this system, generally rather than having a balance of power you're looking at something called spheres of influence so you have larger powers that sort of generate pull over smaller powers but these smaller powers have the option of moving from one sort of protective power to another so you'll have a country like france but it'll have eight tiny duchies beside it that are sort of allied with france because it's convenient for them to do so but hey when things are looking really good with italy maybe they'll go and hang out with the italians for a while has france not
1: Uh, absorbed these little duchies after the end of the 30s war because they didn't want to prolong fighting like why, why would those duchies continue to
0: exist that's a really good question often it's because they have existed independently for so long that they haven't needed to turn to france and say listen can you just take the reins from here and they've never been so bellicose that france has just simply taken them in conquest It's not really advantageous for France to go out. I'm using France, but it could be any great power at this point. It's not really advantageous for them to go, hey, there's a tiny one, I might as well pick that one off and send out a bunch of soldiers and be like, this is ours now. Looks like kind of a A little bit. But on the other hand, if this hypothetical tiny state on the border of France and, say, Prussia happens to join Prussia in a war, and France wins that war... Well, maybe they just might roll over this tiny state. Oh, because... And know. it's France now. Yeah. Maybe they pick their own side. Maybe they pick their own side. It's really easy for some of these small principalities to just sort of lay low or pick the clear victors and stay relatively independent. I mean, obviously, they're going to have some obligations to, the, to these larger powers. But in the end, they're still sovereign. They're still, sovereign states, they still have the ultimate authority within their region. This
1: might be too big of a question for right now, but <laughs> is that
0: the answer to the question, why Switzerland? It is, it actually is. That's the reason why Switzerland, that's the reason why Luxembourg, that's the reason why Denmark or Netherlands. These, I mean, sometimes they were originally two or three smaller states that kind of got together in the case of switzerland i don't know exactly but i do know they have something like four uh, official languages i would not be surprised if they were several small principalities at one point that fused together to make switzerland Hmm. but the reason that switzerland exists now is exactly how these smaller places would exist back then switzerland does it by just staying out of everything i'm not getting involved and as a result it's never been just sort of rolled over in the course of larger conquest aloofness as an evolutionary advantage now mind you it's not always the best way to go often it's more advantageous to pick a side and stick with it than it is to stay neutral um i saw a really great quote from machiavelli on this actually he basically said if you don't pick a side you look like a coward to the losers and you look uh non-committal to the winners Mm. whereas if you pick the the winning side then you look like a valuable ally to the winners and the losers well it doesn't really matter that much you look like you are part of the group of people who defeated them and are included in the people that they now fear and respect mm-hmm. not always the best way to rule machiavelli's is his his, his uh, curriculum but in this case i think he's making a really interesting point when it comes to dynamics between very small states interestingly dynamics
1: that mirror individual human confrontation psychology
0: yeah definitely The next one that I want to talk about quickly is what a confederation is. Confederation and federation kind of get mixed together a lot in sort of colloquial use, but they're very different things. A federation is what you see with the setup of Canada or the United States, where you have a state that have a number of independently ruling bodies within it, but those bodies exist through the permission of the larger sovereign power. So the Provinces of Canada, they exist and they're enshrined in our Constitution, but really they're there because the Constitution has written in that they're going to let these other powers exist within it, just so that doesn't have to deal with some of the things that they can take care of. So they exist as a means of devolving power. Exactly. Whereas a Confederation, the best example I can give you of that is the European Union, where you have sort of a very tight treaty between sovereign powers which is actually mutual it's coming from both sides uh, of each relationship within the power and any power within the confederation technically has the right to dissolve that relationship at any point in time without actually affecting the confederation as a whole if for some reason tomorrow i don't know say norway decided to just drop out of the eu because it's what was best for norway the eu would still exist Mm -hmm. there wouldn't be a problem there but these states have found uh in this case an economic benefit to having a very specific type of treaty and working closely together on certain Mm -hmm. issues confederations were a little bit more common when we're talking about the 19th century because we are talking about so many smaller states So that concept of more of a symbiotic relationship between sovereign states is really important to understand when we're talking about what happens with Germany. The final thing that I wanted to mention before we get into these things, my goodness, we've been going for a long time without even really talking about Germany, is this idea of the relationship between war and politics. And again, this is a a small topic. (laughs) It's tiny, tiny. Don't worry, we'll blow right through it. I bring this up because it's one of those concepts that we have a very specific view of in the 21st century, and it hasn't always been the case, and it's important to make the distinction because this is a time period where that paradigm shift is actually occurring. In 1832, a German man named Clausewitz wrote a work called On War. He had been a general in the Napoleonic Wars. He had seen a lot of warfare, and he basically wrote the art of war for Europe it's an incredible read. It's very, very interesting. But I'm going to just very, very briefly t- touch on something that he's saying. What Clausewitz said was that the only people who can legitimately conduct war are states. And he said, war is the continuation of politic by other means. And what he's saying here is that at one point in time, All it took to go to war is having enough guys that you could round up with a bunch of pointy sticks and kill a bunch of other guys that were causing you trouble. That's feudal Europe in a nutshell. What Clausewitz is saying is that Europe has changed and now that's not good enough anymore. Passion isn't a good reason for war. War has turned into another tool in the politicians' arsenal that that they can use to further their their own ends. It can be a, a bigger concept than it used to. Yes. And yeah, it, it's been sort of incorporated into a, a larger thing and is no longer just sort of subject to human passions. And I mean, obviously, he's very aware of the fact that that's a major part of warfare. But he's saying that that sort of primal aggression can be channeled in a productive way and that that's sort of become the new norm of warfare.
1: Now, was he just describing what is, or what he's, was he also saying what should be? Both.
0: He thought that this was better, because he was saying that, number one, this means a restriction on warfare, because, again, you can't just grab a bunch of your buddies and go kill someone and call it a war. That's now murder. Was it because war had some sort of cachet of, of legitimacy? In what way? In terms of what it was before, or what it had become what it had at become, that time,
1: drawing that line between murder and war—that you know you can't just run off and kill someone with your pointy sticks because you're mad—but uh, if you're a nation state doing the same thing, well, that's legitimate because you're conducting war, and so it's it's useful to have that distinction in uh, in his, his contemporary
0: time. Yes, that's exactly what he's going for and the other thing that he's saying is basically we have alternatives to war war isn't the only thing because now he's kind of categorizing war as being a political tool as a way for nation states to further their their own interests he's saying well yeah it's one way of doing it but let's face it there's a lot of other things that you can do before you get to full pitched battle i kind of bring all these things up again it's a little bit Disjointed at the moment; it's a little bit out of context. But these are all really interest, or really important things to kind of keep in mind as we talk about Germany incorporating into a nation state. So, uh, w- sorry, Clausewitz wrote on war
1: after the end of the Napoleonic Wars. When about would that be? On war was published in
0: 1832. Okay. It was actually posthumous; his wife uh, published it, but he wrote it basically between the end of Napoleonic war and I believe the early 1820s. So he spent some time really reflecting on this and thinking about it. It's technically unfinished. It's, there, there's enough of it there, though, to get a very, very firm grasp of the philosophy of warfare, if you want to call it that. Again, a very interesting read. It's not necessarily for everyone, but it, it does have. It, it is very interesting in terms of how war was being used as a political tool in the 19th century. So how about we move on to the topic at hand, Germany, and get going on that. We've been mentioning Napoleonic Wars a couple of times, and that's actually where we're going to start on this, is 1806. In 1806, the Holy Roman Empire, which was still around in 1806, by the way. Still going strong in Rome? Not in Rome, actually. Still, still got Caesar there. Uh, well... Out. They, they, did, they did call their leader the Kaiser, which is the German version of the word Caesar.
1: <laughs>
0: Anyways, 1806, the Holy Roman Empire is defeated in battle by Napoleon. Where, where was the Holy Roman Empire? The Holy Roman Empire was Central Europe. So the Holy Roman Empire is basically everything that we think of now as Germany, more or less, but also included large portions of Austria, it included big chunks of what's now Poland, which isn't even a country at this point in time. Had been, was incorporated by both Russia and the Holy Roman Empire. Oh, Poland. Yeah, poor Poland. It, it, the, the Holy Roman Empire had a pretty good spread, and also down into northern Italy. I hate to, to delay us even more, and this might be too big
1: of a question, but how do we get, we, we have Rome, mm-hmm. you know, that has some problems. Sure. One or two political things. And then it gets moved, the party gets moved over to uh, Constantinople, uh-huh. And uh, we've got a new Roman Empire that's totally the legit Roman Empire mm-hmm. that's not in Rome. Mm-hmm. How do we get from Byzantium and Constantinople up to
0: middle of Europe for the Holy Roman Empire? So this is an entire topic in and of itself. It could very easily fill an entire show. Here's the short version: Roman Empire Falls. Roman Empire uh, in the West, as mm-hmm. you mentioned in Constantinople, it continues on. That keeps doing its own thing, and that's now out of the picture. What we do have is all of these old Roman provinces that are now sort of governing themselves, right? In In Europe, and in, and especially in what is now Germany, uh, but also to the West in in France, what they would have called Gaul. The ashes of the empire. Basically. And what happened was that they slowly sort of either conquered each other or were amalgamated for various reasons, especially in Gaul. They they seem to centralize a little bit more quickly than in Germania. In the 10th century, a guy called Charlemagne comes along, unites a whole bunch of these old provinces, makes this an incredibly large empire, goes around, kicks some butt, calls this the Holy Roman Empire. Because it's cool to be Rome. Because it's cool to be Rome, but he also saw... I mean, there's a lot of Western history that's about finding a connection between Rome and you because Rome pretty much killed it. They did a pretty good job while they were going strong. He was looking at this going, we've got all of the old Roman provinces. They extended somewhat down into Italy. And I mean, honestly, at the time of Rome's fall, Rome wasn't even the capital of Rome anymore. Mm. They weren't using it. It was kind of an old backwards town it was more symbolic than anything else. So they're looking at this going if you look at a map of the old Roman Empire and you look at a map of what we've got it's basically Rome. So we might as well call it what it is. It is the new it is a new Rome and this time it's it's united under Charlemagne who was a Christian a strongly Christian man and he decided that this was blessed by God and called it the Holy Roman Empire. Now after i believe it was two generations that kind of petered out but then a new ruler came along about 80 years later really kind of hammered it home as the holy roman empire got the pope to crown him emperor of the holy roman empire which definitely seals the deal right and then basically you've got 800 years of holy roman empire and the holy roman empire was sort of this loose amalgamation of germanic states never super centralized so there wasn't a Rome
1: in, in effect.
0: No, the seat of the Holy Roman Empire moved around a bunch of times, but it was it moved a number of times. It wasn't a strongly authoritative, uh, strongly centralized political system. What you had was a lot of duchies, a lot of principalities, a lot of you know very small states. I mean, we're looking at over three hundred uh, states that made up the Holy Roman Empire at one point in time or another. Yikes! So. There's a lot of discussion around why, say, France turned into one body, like political body, and why Holy Roman Empire didn't really. And there are a lot of theories, but it kind of comes down to we're not entirely sure. We don't have a great reason. It just didn't. Hmm. So that's enough on the Holy Roman Empire. Again, it'll be a great show someday. Oh, I look forward to it. 1806, Napoleon rolls over the Holy Roman Empire. What up? Just like he rolls over all of Europe, just constantly, and the emperor at the time of the Holy Roman Empire, or at the at the time of this battle, Francis II, uh, who's a Habsburg, by the way, just to let you know, they were rulers of the Holy Roman Empire since the fifteenth century. Yeah, familiar, familiar you, name. You may know it. Basically, they they they're, devi- they're defeated really badly at the Battle of Austerlitz, and Francis II kind of decides honestly, I have no country left. And he abdicates, technically, abdicates the throne of the Holy Roman Empire, effectively dissolving the Holy Roman Empire, makes himself emperor of Austria. Now, Vienna is where the seat of the Holy Roman Empire had been anyways, so effectively all he really did was move the goalpost back from sort of the western reaches, you know, the Rhine, all the way back into Austria, so that he was a little bit less likely to get stomped by Napoleon. Fine, Napoleon, I'm taking my ball and going home. Essentially. Now, the Austrian Empire was nothing to sneeze at. It included all of what's now Hungary, down into the Balkans. It was a huge territory. But it did leave a lot of territories in the lurch, because all of a sudden, where you used to have the might of the Holy Roman Empire behind you, guess what? You're Luxembourg. And Napoleon's coming. Good luck with Napoleon. Good luck with Napoleon. (laughs) It'll turn out great. Luxembourg still exists. That that was the best example I could... Luxembourg's got that going for him. (laughs) (laughs) It was the best example I could bring to mind of the sort of scale of state we're talking about here. Because they were tiny. They were really, really, really small. They had very small populations. Next to no armies. Their only real strength lay in their ability to work together under the emperor... ...to sort of work towards a common goal. That's all they had going Being for Being part of a cool club. Alone, not so hot. Really, really not so hot. The first thing that Napoleon does... ...is he creates what's called the Confederation of the Rhine. And essentially, he said, okay, all you tiny guys there... ...you are now the Confederation of the Rhine. You work for me. Raise me an army. And they said, okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're a country now. It's cool. Everything's solid. We're cool now.
0: But they're not Keeping even guys. but they're not even a country. They're a confederation. Now, mind oh, you, yeah. they're forced they're forced into the confederation by Napoleon. And while they could technically withdraw from that confederation, the consequences really you know, if you make a list of all the pros and cons, it's probably gonna come out in your favor to just stay in the Napoleon Confederation. It works better. Con Angering Napoleon. Now the two it's a bad con. The two states that stayed out of this confederation are Austria, as I mentioned, that became the Austrian Empire. And basically after the defeat they basically said we're gonna stay out. Of it. And Prussia. Prussia is huge. At some at some point look on a map what historical Prussia looked like at about eighteen hundred. It's a large country. is it most of germany it takes up basically the top half of germany more or less and extends far east into poland it's a large territory okay that's yeah that's a pretty rough idea of what you're looking at here but it's it's big and it's powerful prussia was founded by teutonic knights prussia sounds impressive Prussia was based on a system. They had a king, but they also had a class of nobles called Junkers, who were very militarily inclined. When you were a a Prussian noble, you went to officer school. That's what you did. And their army was incredibly powerful. Now, again, not powerful enough to take on Napoleon at the height of his power. So they basically said, No, we're not joining your stupid confederation, but I'll tell you what. We'll just stay out of it, and you leave us alone. Sound cool? Cool.
1: So they, obviously, uh, but to confirm, they weren't part of the Holy Roman Empire. They were neighbors with the Holy Roman Empire. They had been part of the Holy Roman
0: Empire up until its dissolution. Oh, yeah. Yes, but as soon as, as, soon as, the, uh, as soon as the Battle of Austerlitz comes around in 1805 and the Holy Roman Empire is dissolved in 1806, it doesn't matter. There's, no, there's nothing for them to be a part of there anymore. It's gone. So when, when, the, when an empire falls apart, and, and I mean, that's, that's the thing that I didn't really clarify as much when I talked about different systems earlier, but when an empire falls apart, you're left with constituent states, and with no sort of overarching emperor to oversee these states, you are now your own sovereign authority. It's as if, you know, it's as if the, the White House was wiped off the map, and all of a sudden it meant that there were 50 sovereign nations in north america and guess what they are on equal terms and they are sovereign and they have no business getting involved in each other's affairs whatsoever
1: that would that would turn out well i i feel like that would be great
0: (laughs) texas would not do anything they would start nothing i mean i wish i had led with that example earlier because it kind of gives an idea of just how devastating the dissolution of the holy roman empire was on these germanic states Because you had a loose federation of states, kind of like the United States now, and it just, poof, disappeared, and all of a sudden there are all these tiny things. Again, like if the the White House had just gone away. And, yeah, you're going to have your Texases, but you're also going to have your Rhode Islands. And they're not looking so great. They're really not looking so great. So, once Napoleon was ultimately defeated in 1815, there was this sort of power vacuum because really the, con- the 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 Confederation of the Rhine wasn't a political entity that it was going to last. It was essentially a vassal state of France through Napoleon, right? So when Napoleon was defeated, all of these nations or all of these tiny states are kind of back where they started. They've got no leadership whatsoever. They're kind of on their own and they're a little bit scared because they don't have the political clout to really last in this system especially as bellicose as it is at this point in time. And something that went along with the defeat of of Napoleon is again another congress they like you know another war they finish they feel, feel a little horror we'll hungover again. you get the congress of Vienna and the goal of the congress of Vienna was again no more war never again please <laughs> we'll fix it this time guys and they decide to do this through what they called the, the concert of Europe they de- decide to basically divide up Europe between five major powers Austria, Prussia, Russia, France, and Britain. And everyone's going to kind of fall into these spheres of influence, right? Because these are about equally sized, about equally powered, and if one of them goes nuts Napoleon-style, the other four should be able to take them. And this should keep things in line. But they were worried about Prussia and Austria, because they were both very powerful. And they created something that was called the German Confederation. And this was basically a loose confederation of Germanic states, again, and included parts of Prussia and Austria this time, but not all of Prussia and Austria because they owned territory that wasn't traditionally German. The idea being that there there, there would be sort of this buffer in between Prussia and Austria to keep the two of them from butting heads. It would try and give these Germanic states some protection by being in this confederation, loose as it was, and ultimately you would end up with this sort of five spheres of influence in Europe that shouldn't be able to go to war effectively against one another. And they were hoping that this was going to hold together. The problem being the Germans already, even at this point in time, thought, listen, we're all Germans. Why don't we just make a Germany? <laughs> What's so hard about all of this? Guys, we've got
1: all the parts right here. It's ready to go. We, we can assemble. they fit in perfectly together. If you look at it on a, it on a map, all the pieces jigsaw mm-hmm. right together. If
0: you put them together, it looks like Germany. <laughs> Surprisingly. This was called the German question. And they were so intent on this idea that Germany should be its own state for their own good. Because if they could just become as powerful as France... Now it's Germany's century. We'll come back to that issue in just a minute. All right, we're back on HI101. I'm here with Dan McGuinness. And we're talking about the unification of Germany. Uh, when we left off, basically Germany had been the opposite of united. It had been smashed into a whole bunch of little pieces. And already people were kind of feeling like, hey, let's put it back together again. One of the first things that happened within the German Confederation is this thing, and please forgive me because I don't know German, I wish I did. It's such a, a unique sounding language. This thing called the, uh, the Zolverin. And the Zolverin was created initially uh, within Prussia. Basically they said okay we've got all of these borders that things have to cross if we're doing trade. Let's come up with standard currency and let's come up with a standard toll rate and let's get our roads in order so that it's not like it's the 1200s anymore.
1: Insert joke about German efficiency.
0: Essentially yeah. It turned out this worked out pretty well for Prussia. It was going pretty good. Free trade agreements. Yep. Often do. And it ended up working so well that by 1834 basically all the germanic states had jumped on board with the zolverin willingly they were going sure we'll use the same currency sure sure we will standardize our toll rates this sounds fantastic let's get some roads put up let's get the trade booming this sounds awesome that was was that championed by prussia yes that was championed by Prussia. The German Confederation was really interesting. I just wanted to note, it's, it's a lot bigger than just sort of the Germany as we think of it today. There were, uh, we mentioned uh, Luxembourg in there. Denmark was part of it. Technically, uh, the King of Britain was part of the German Confederation because they had hereditary lands in Hanover. Oh, right. Now, when Queen Elizabeth came to the throne in 1837, Hanover's uh, secession laws... Salic la law prevented her from inheriting Hanover. Exactly. So they were no longer part of the League at that point. But up until then, technically, the German king was part of the, the German... or Sorry, the, the British king was part of the German confederation, which is kind of interesting. So they're all kind of getting on board with this free trade agreement. They're pushing for road infrastructure, steamboats up and down the Rhine, but before this, it was people with barges and workhorses. It's hard to kind of describe just how behind the times Germany was during the period where it was the Holy Roman Empire, because it was so decentralized it had no real incentive to develop infrastructure.
1: Hmm, That's certainly not reminiscent of any other country maybe 60 years later. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) No, I'm talking about Japan.
0: Yep. But, I mean, like Japan, they just industrialized really quickly they started encouraging the the production of steel like the steel industry within germany and they got very very good at it
1: and like japan they were completely content to stay within their own borders then
0: Ooh. But neither of those are true what <laughs> there was the bavarian ludwig railway in 1835 it was six kilometers long it ran from nuremberg to firth that was 1835. Within 25 years, there was over 11,000 kilometers of rail within Germany. <laughs> they didn't mess around. <laughs> was that their test track? Essentially. Look at the six kilometers. Really good guys. It was proof of concept. It was basically them saying, let's give this rail thing a try. Let's see if it works for us. And it did. Very okay, build, well. build a
1: thousand of those. <laughs>
0: So already you see through kind of economic ties these small states are kind of drawing together because it just makes sense. I mean, you're not going to make it in Europe in the 19th century if you don't have some sort of economic treaty that's allowing you access to the purchasing power of the majority of the continent. And the bargaining power of all of these small states collectively is far greater than what, say, again, Luxembourg would be able to pull off on their own. Poor Luxembourg. Poor Luxembourg. You also get a lot of interest in... German culture at this point in time, people are really looking for things that are going to tie German-speaking people together. Because, again, there's this idea of, of the German nation, right? Because there's no country called Germany at this point. There is no Germany. When you talk about historical German figures, they weren't born in Germany. They were born in some tiny principality you've never heard of, and it eventually became Germany, and Germany adopted them as part of their culture. Look at Martin Luther, for example. He was not German. He was born in Saxony, I believe, but it became part of Germany, and he's held up as a national treasure. So what people were looking to tie this identity together? Well, I'll give you a really good example. The brothers Grimm. They were going around in this period of time. Actually, uh, 1812 to 1857, Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm were traveling around the countryside. Those are such good names. probably like Jakob or something. They were traveling around the countryside asking people what folktales they knew. And they were writing them down and they were noting similarities and they were noting differences. They were writing them down exactly as people were telling them because they felt that people who had come before them looking at folktales were destroying part of the culture by taking the oral element out of the storytelling. So their whole idea was we're going to write this down exactly as it's told to us and they would record slightly different versions of each of these tales from different regions of Germany. And they would sort of look at the differences and sort of celebrate the diverse, diversity of German culture, but really focus on the fact that all of these stories are the same and show how there's this sort of commonality within German speaking people that they all sort of share this primal, you know, pre-industrial uh, cultural heritage this wasn't coming from the top this wasn't a leader thing
1: this was the people of germany were trying to find ways to integrate together very much because they wanted to be one culture
0: absolutely Hmm. yep and i mean certainly there's a lot of problems inherent in this namely that they weren't specifically one culture they were tied together by language certainly but the culture say in prussia was very different than what it was in bavaria for example i mean even religiously these states varied widely Again, Bavaria was a strongly Catholic state, whereas Prussia was extremely Protestant. You had small principalities that were observing Calvinist values. I mean, this was part of what the Treaty of Westphalia was about, right? So Westphalian statehood not infringing on sovereignty of other states. They're looking for this common identity, but there are certain things that have kept them apart over the years that are sort of blocking this idea of a unified nationhood. That being said, it certainly didn't stop people from looking for it. It's just that there are a lot of practicalities of of creating a singular identity that you know they're kind of being held up by. The other thing that's kind of going on at this point in time is that, and, and we're talking about, at this point in time, we're talking about the 1840s. I mean, we're talking 30 years after the Napoleonic Wars. A big reaction to the Napoleonic Wars was sort of a, general conservatism sort of a very a focus of maintaining order because napoleon was seen as a reaction to the revolution so they were basically saying if we keep sort of to the old ways it will help us to avoid what happened with napoleon did they then cling to monarchy as a result absolutely and i mean monarchy in sort of the wider sense we're not talking just kings well a lot of these people are dukes or princes or barons what have you but certainly looking at a noble class to sort of rule over people by the 1840s this crazy idea called socialism is really starting to hit home in europe and in 1848 everything kind of comes to a head in february in france but in germany in march and 1848 is kind of called the year of revolutions in in europe because Kind of similar to what we saw with the arab spring just all of these crazy grassroots protests and and uprisings came around that had sort of similar values behind them namely liberalism in the in the classical sense the small l liberalism so personal freedoms and things like that and uh sort of humanist equalities, but They weren't coming, like, there were no specific leaders beyond, like, very, very local and very, very small numbers. They were just sort of happening everywhere. But enough of them happened at the same time that the established rulers got very scared about it. It was so bad, actually, that in France, the, uh, I forget which Napoleon it was, I believe Napoleon III, was actually deposed. The empire fell and they created something called the paris commune i don't know if you've ever heard of that but for a fairly large chunk of time in paris there was a functioning communist society they took over paris they ousted a napoleon and they actually lived in pure communism for a while i do remember that
1: actually yeah it it ended great for them
0: <laughs> yeah there's a reason why there's a reason why france isn't still communist well In Germany, a lot of this stuff took on a very nationalistic flavor. There were sort of protests in favor of let's unite Germany, but let's do it in a way that's for the German people and not just for the German leaders. Let's not make this about sort of furthering the people that are already above us, but let's take matters into our own hands. Let's, as German people, create our Germany. So it wasn't quite an overthrow sentiment It was less overthrow and more let's build something great together. Which is, as far as revolutions go, kind of a nice sentiment.
1: Yeah. I mean, it seems like the only reason
0: that it turned out that way was because they were a fractured state. Absolutely. And that, that fractured nature gave them something to build towards. One thing that you'll notice about grassroots revolutions is that they're not super organized. And the slower they are to organize, the worse off they're going to be. If you don't get a structured leadership in place, if you don't get a common goal in place, very, very quickly, you're basically doomed to failure. Most of these revolutions in Germany didn't really go anywhere. They got quashed pretty quickly by the ruling elite, as revolutions tend to. The place that it got furthest was actually in Frankfurt, which at the time, was uh, as more a city state than anything. It was sort of self ruling at the time. It wasn't. It wasn't part of a, a, a bigger state at, at that point. But what they did was they set up a, a quasi parliament. They wanted a representative democracy. They wanted. They wanted universal suffrage, which wasn't a thing in Germany at that point in time. They wanted all these relatively progressive things. When you say it wasn't a tangent,
1: uh, when you say that it, universal suffrage wasn't a thing. I mean, given the period, obviously not women. Oh, yes, unfortunately, yeah. But by that, do you also mean it was only, like,
0: landowners? and That was a big qualification for having suffrage at that point in time. Not... And, it, yeah, you have to kind of qualify that. They were looking for universal male suffrage. Kind of bummer. This is history. It's the way it goes. <laughs>
1: universal white male suffrage. Yeah. Keep reaching for that rainbow, guys. Yep. We'll get there.
0: And this uh, this Frankfurt Assembly formed... And they went, basically, we have two options here. There are two main states that can protect us as Germans if we want to make a Germany. There's Austria, who are very powerful, but they saw them as... And here's the sort of ugly side of nationalism kind of poking its head out. They saw them as less German than some of the other options because so much of the Austrian Empire was composed of non-Germans, of Slavs and the like. Mm. So they said... Prussia is basically the only way we have to go Prussia you're big you're German you've got a nice army can you just can can how about you can become you emperor us,
1: can you call us sometime <laughs> and they we actually really like your army
0: and they actually offered the uh, they, they offered the king of Prussia the emperorship of all the Germanys they said <laughs> you should be our emperor we've drafted a constitution they actually wrote up a constitution and in 1850, they offered they offered the crown to the sitting king of Prussia. And he politely declined, saying that his royal peers in Europe probably wouldn't take too kindly of this, but privately to others commented that he didn't want to scoop a crown from the gutter.
1: Ooh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the Holy
1: Roman Empire, we both keep mispronouncing that. Which is odd. That's okay.
0: The Holy Roman Empire wasn't...
1: Quite as well regarded now that it just fell apart.
0: That wasn't what he was saying. What he was saying was he refused to take a crown from the people because he saw himself as he's well as so many monarchs. He saw himself as ruling by divine right. Yeah, anointed by God, not by Steve down the street. Exactly. So, crown from them? No, thank you. I'm good. He said, (laughs) "This is just fine. (laughs) I'm cool, guys." Basically, by refusing that, that was the end of the Frankfurt Assembly. That's it, it, it kind of died off after that. I mean, it lasted almost two years, which is impressive for anything that happened during the 1848 revolutions. Not a lot of stuff came out of it, except for just sort of a social shift. But there's not a lot that you can point to practically that came out of the 1848 revolutions. Things like, say, the Communist Manifesto came out of it. Things like further acceptance of socialism, further acceptance of liberalism, workers' rights. Ideas like those got better traction out of it, but not a lot of actual laws changed. Yeah, I mean, the world didn't look much different in 1850 than it did in 1846, if you know what I mean.
1: That's got to be the biggest letdown. Spend two years drafting this thing, getting you ready for the king. Oh, he's going to be so excited, you guys. Oh, let's, let's give it to him in a wrapped box. We got this, we got this Constitution drafted. Here you go. Oh. Oh, thanks, guys. Uh, I've already got a crown, though. <laughs> uh, this one fits pretty well, too. I'm good. Just
0: had a buff last week.
1: Maybe you, can, maybe you can take this Constitution back and get a refund.
0: It was a huge letdown for these people. I mean, when you join a revolutionary movement... You don't expect to lose. No one joins it expecting to lose. Especially in that way. Especially in that way. Now, there's this idea in German history called Sonderweg, which is this idea of German exceptionalism that Germany had to have its its history play out the way it did. And I don't subscribe to this for fairly obvious reasons, in that I think very, very little about history is inevitable. You could say almost nothing. But people who subscribe to this school of thought point to 1848 as the beginning of the Sonderweg. They say that if Germany had just united in 1848, everything would have gone differently. But the moment that the elites quashed this revolution in 1848, it set Germany on this path that ultimately leads to World War II, which is why I kind of look at this and go, no, this is ridiculous. Let's take a step back. But I mention this to kind of highlight just how important 1848 was to the idea of Germany as a country. Even though nothing really happened, a lot of people saw it as a missed opportunity. They looked at it and said, well, there's our shot. We blew it. They had a tough time with that. For the next little bit, we're going to look fairly specifically at Prussia, because in a lot of ways, what we think of as German history is Prussian history. And we'll get a little bit closer to that as we go on. Mm. But Prussia's reaction to being offered this emperorship of all the Germanys was to create its own constitution in 1850. It decided, yeah, we'll do kind of like a parliament was that kind of in a
1: in a sense trying to I mean you said you were going to get into it but is that avoiding a uh, a more unfriendly peasant uprising within Prussia
0: maybe in a few years? Yes, uh, we'll get we'll get a little more into that. But okay. the idea of realpolitik really plays strongly into this. This this parliament was technically elected uh, members, but And and I should be clear, this is only within Prussia. They weren't imposing this parliament on anyone else in the German Confederation. But they were kind of looking at this going, okay, so maybe our absolutist monarchy isn't quite going to cut it anymore. One of the people that was present for the 1848 uprisings and for the drafting of this constitution was a guy named Otto von Bismarck. You may have heard of him yes i think so german statesman very influential he wasn't really he didn't have any major power at this point in time but he was definitely he was he was involved in the drafting of the constitution he was very active in this new parliament drafting laws and he was extremely pro-monarchy he was very conservative in the small c sense of the word and that he liked order and he liked you know, the social structure that Prussia had at that point in time. He was for a strong military. He was for lower economic controls, things like that. He was, he was very classically conservative. But he was, oh, and I, I should mention, at this point, we're talking about King Wilhelm I. He, he, was, he was the one that refused the uh, tarnished crown. No, that was actually Wilhelm's father. I couldn't remember his name. I think it was Friedrich IV. I'll have to double check on that one though. I didn't have it written in my notes and I don't know why. So disappoint. Anyways, Wilhelm I appointed Bismarck his Minister-President in 1862. Now the position of Minister-President was essentially the reverse of what a Prime Minister is. So a Prime Minister is basically you have a representative body, they pick one person from among their peers to basically say this is our leader, this is the mouthpiece for this parliament, And if there is any other sovereign power involved in that country, they're kind of the, sort of the personification of the liaison of those two bodies. Kind of ish. The minister-president was basically Wilhelm going, okay, well, we have a parliament. Here's my guy in parliament. Pay attention to him, everybody, and do what he says.
1: As if the governor-general of Canada were... Part of the House of Commons?
0: Not only part of the House of Commons, but also the leader and proposed all of the legislation and everyone had to do what they said. Seems legit. Super democratic. Super so democratic. Balanced. Such justice. In terms of people with that level of, of power, Bismarck was not a bad choice. He was an incredibly intelligent man. He came from the Junker class. So he was trained in, in military, but he was also... Very highly trained in politics, in humanities, extremely smart.
1: I'm gonna stop you there. Uh, the Junker class.
0: Yes, the Junkers were. It actually comes from the words "Jung" and "Herr," so it, it meant young lords. Young sir. Well, yeah, young sir. And the Junkers were, as as I think I mentioned earlier, they were all trained militarily. They were sort of independently wealthy but expected to actually be competent as well so it was kind of this interesting combination of of wealth but also the capability that can only be bought with wealth which is a lot better than wealth that is just sort of squandered and you know mostly incompetent and sort of fallen into by birth
1: sounds kind of reminiscent of
0: the height of roman society i agree I wouldn't necessarily model my ideal society off of it, but it it generally isn't a bad way to get very strong leaders. Because if you're expecting the people with money to buy the best education that they can buy, they're going to get a pretty good education. And somewhere in there, you're going to find someone that's a pretty smart person to actually lead competently. And that person was Bismarck. He was the one from this whole group. Everyone born at this point in time, Bismarck, just... Floated to the top. Bismarck was a big proponent of this sort of realpolitik that I was talking about, which is this idea that the reality of a situation and your reaction to it is far more important than any sort of ideology or hard line. Never set your mind to something so firmly that you can't go against that if it's to your benefit. So while he was very strongly conservative, while he was very religious, while he was extremely strongly for the monarchy he was willing to go against these things you know his own personal convictions if it was for the benefit of prussia and you know this is the kind of thing that you see with successful statement ever since then kind of using bismarck as a model because they realize that's kind of what you have to do to get ahead is just do what's best and not just what you believe is right pragmatism yeah i mean Kissinger was a huge fan of Bismarck. You don't say. And say, say what you will about Kissinger. He, uh, he, he turned a situation to his advantage whenever he could. One of the earliest things that he did uh, as minister-president was there was this issue in, in these two territories called uh, Schleswig and Holstein, where there were two people who had claims to these territories. One of them was the King of Denmark, and one of them was an independent duke who was actually German. Prussia was a very close ally of Denmark and they weren't super close with Austria at this point in time, even though they were part of the same confederation. There's just a lot of tension between the two powers because they're both very strong. Mm. And you have issues like with the, the Frankfurt um, parliament kind of choosing between the two as which one is more German. And they really felt those tensions. However, even though Prussia was allied with Denmark he looked to a 10 year old treaty said listen this independent duke should get these territories Denmark I'm going to have to say no and actually allied with Austria against Denmark in this matter which completely goes against the hard line of Prussia right? once they had wrested control of these two territories from Denmark basically gave Holstein to Austria and kept Schleswig for Prussia and said this is the way this shakes out if Denmark can't have them, we will. Little for you, little for me. And what you see here is that they've strengthened relations with Austria. They've gained a new territory for themselves. And weakened Denmark. And yeah, made an en- enemy of Denmark in the process. But they're weaker now. So, oh well. It is Denmark. This isn't to say that, you know, Bismarck was a good person. Obviously, this was a bad thing to do. He just, you know, kind of screwed over Denmark. Whoops. That's the kind of thing that Bismarck would do, though, because he saw the situation and he went, how does this shake out best for me? I mean, if game theory was a thing, he would have read nothing but. Probably played a decent amount of chess, too. Oh, I would imagine so. I would never be... Who would win against Bismarck? Oh, that'd be so fun. Supercomputers, that's about it. Honestly, I I, I can only imagine. Now... Bismarck was also very interested in this sort of idea of German unification, especially as a Prussian, because there was two ideas of how a unified Germany would look, a greater Germany and a lesser Germany, greater Germany incorporating all of the German territories, including Austria, including Denmark, and including all of these little places that are sort of outside of it. And this lesser Germany was this idea of a Germany that excludes Austria. And the reason that this came up is Austria's non-Germanic holdings they were always a sticking point point. and as far as Prussia is concerned Prussia would prefer a Germany without Austria because a Germany without Austria is a Prussian Germany they basically own most of Germany in that case so Bismarck's looking at this going let's shoot for this Prussian Germany and what's more unlike those fools in 1848 I have a vision of how this can look I have a vision of what this Germany can look like it is a Germany that coincides with all of Prus- uh, with all of Bismarck's values. So it's Protestant Germany. It's a Germany that is militarily strong, that is industrially strong, that is a major player economically on the European tr- stage. And you'll notice that a lot of these things sound like the Germany that we know as Germany. But how does Bismarck get all of the duchies and such to?
1: buy into those values specifically the religious ones i'm so glad
0: you asked this question with three moves first he has to eliminate the possibility of a greater germany and to do that he has to turn all of these states against austria in 1866 austria renegs on the agreement about Schleswig and holstein they say, you know what, instead of giving one to you and one to me, let's go to the German Confederation and ask all of these states what we what they think we should do with them. And Austria is hoping that the Confederation is going to look at Prussia and go, ah, they're getting a little big, we're a little worried about them, let's give it to Austria. Austria is kind of the big sleepy but benign empire on our east that we know and don't really mind too much about. Bismarck said, nope, you're breaking a treaty, let's go to war about this. It's on. And he has
1: legitimate... Reason to do that.
0: He has a very legitimate reason to do it. He just broke it, or they just broke a treaty. They just denied Prussia a territory that they were just legitimately given under treaty by Austria. And in the process of giving it, made Prussia look kind of good because they
1: kept one for themselves, but they gave one to Austria.
0: Yeah, exactly. For Austria's help in the Danish conflict. So basically, Bismarck looks at the situation goes, I can't lose. War is on. Oh, and by the way, at this whole, uh, at this point in time, he's been in, co- in talks with the small states that are on their way to becoming Italy, made a secret alliance with them against Austria. You I'm never not wanna, even joking.
1: You never want to wake up and find out, find out that Bismarck made a secret alliance
0: against you. You're going to have a terrible day. Austria had a slightly bigger army than Prussia. It didn't have twice as big of an army, and now it's fighting on two fronts. Italy in the south, Prussia in the north. The Prussian commander was actually incredible. His name was General Moltke, and he chose his battles very carefully, picked only sure victories, just dismantled the Austrian army. It was was not even close to a fair fight. It was incredible. So this division of forces, the slightly better command of the army... All of this turned into a war that lasted seven weeks. They called it a blitzkrieg. Did they? A lightning war.
1: That's a, that's a catchy phrase. Mm-hmm.
0: So out of this, they get new territories, they get new allies. They actually dissolve the German Confederation out of this because it had involved Prussia and Austria, and that's not really an option anymore. So they formed something called the North Germanic Confederation in 1867 this included most of the german states
1: did it also include part of austria
0: no did did prussia take any of austria there were some small territorial exchanges there wasn't a lot but yeah there's there's always land changing sides in these conflicts but they weren't trying to take over austria no all they were trying to do with austria is eliminate them as a threat to german unification okay Basically, they don't care if Austria is just sitting over there as long as they're not getting in their business, because they don't want to destroy Austria because that would make them look bad because they're destroying a fellow German, right? All they're trying to do is neutralize their power. Fight a legitimate war, declaw them, and let them sleep it off. Exactly. So what this really did was give German states a side to rally to, right? And... This kind of goes back to what we were talking about with the prince, right? Like you need to pick a side in order to look strong. And if you don't pick a side and you just sort of stand back and watch, you're going to look at this. So so you have you have you have three options. Either you sided with Prussia and you just won a war and you feel great and Prussia's the best, or you sided with Austria and oh crap, I really need to be afraid of Prussia now they're going to do to me what they did to Austria who is so much bigger than me. I better play nice with Prussia. Better call them up first, you know? Or there's the people who decided to take the wait and see method and they waited and they saw Prussia is the side to go with. Prussia looks really good out of this. Bismarck wins. Bismarck wins. I kind of wish
1: Bismarck talked in the the third person (laughs) while he was alive.
0: Yeah, that would be amazing. So, that's kind of... When I said... three moves move one was kind of the deal with schleswig holstein with with denmark he was trying to set up a situation there move two was taking out austria in 1866 move three was basically him going i need an issue that will unite all germans that are under my influence to a common cause because without a common cause what reason do they have to stay allied with me i've got them now but that's a temporary thing i've had influence over states before Need some sort of uh, some sort of other. Some sort a, of other. Yeah. That would be great. That would be fantastic. In eighteen seventy, Prince Leopold, who is actually a cousin of, of Wilhelm's. Of course. Was offered the Spanish throne. The Spanish throne had been vacant for a couple of years. They had died without an heir, and they needed somebody to come rule them, and usually they just kind of look to the family tree and go, Who's closest? They offered it to this this cousin from uh, Hohenzollern Sigmaringen probably how you say that definitely i didn't i
1: did not know you sp- spoke fluent <laughs> german I don't speak fluent
0: english now spain as you may know is on the border of france occasionally and the french kind of have an interest in what goes on in spain and one thing that's that france would really not like is a, French king in Spa- a German king in Spain and all of Germany like on either side of it. They don't like being a German sandwich? It makes them feel anxious. Being a German sandwich frequently makes one feel anxious. So things start kind of getting a little bit tense. France kind of tells Germany no, you're, you're not putting a German king on the Spanish throne. That's not going to work for us. The French diplomat to Prussia had a conversation, a very informal conversation, with Wilhelm I. Wilhelm's secretary, as a good secretary does, took minutes. Sent them to Bismarck, who, you know, is is minister-president. He should see these things. It's a matter of state. Bismarck looked at the telegram. He edited it, and he sent it to the newspapers. This is called the EMS dispatch. He didn't change the content. What he did change was leaving out s- s- just slight pleasantries that were exchanged between the two of them. Made it seem tense. Made it seem very tense. Made it seem like Wilhelm had been rude to the diplomat. Made it seem like the diplomat had been rude to Wilhelm. Germans said, the French have been rude to us. <laughs> That's what they said. <laughs> exactly like that. The French rude? I will not stand. <laughs> the French said, that the Prussian king disrespected our diplomat and the eve of bastille day of all things (laughs) there was some there was some nationalistic fervor going on and they went you know what that's it we can't have any of this and france declared war on germany that's it fight the germans in three very deft moves bismarck had his other he had a rallying cry for germany but first he had a war to fight next time we'll talk about the conflict that brought dozens of german states together against a common enemy as well as the struggle of the newborn country for a leading part in the concert of europe we'll be back on the 15th with more about germany on hi 101 as the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.